like to welcome everybody to Miller Theater for this event to mark the conclusion of President Havel's seven-week residency uh, at Columbia and also a celebration of Columbia's library's new Center for Human Rights Documentation and Research. Let me just recognize Jim Neal, Vice President for Information Services and University Librarian, who has overseen the creation and launch of the center, uh, which gives us reason to celebrate today. I'd also like to recognize Greg Mosier, Director of our Columbia University Arts Initiative, who has planned and coordinated and conceived of and executed this extraordinary residency. Um, we're talking today about human rights. And it is, of course, deeply fitting that we should have two of the leading figures in the world who have lived and written and thought in the realm of human rights. President Havel, who, as I said, finishes his residency here, uh, is a person who has defined for his life trying to live in support of human rights. He told one Czech reporter this past month, I feel it to be my natural duty even now, when I no longer hold any political post, to commit myself to the struggle for human rights, for human freedom, for human dignity on an international level. This concept of a natural duty is part of President Havel's larger life struggle at all times to live within the truth, his famous phrase that captures so much about what it means to live a good and responsible life. It's the same theme that has run through the 21 events that have defined President Havel's residency here from the core students reading his 1978 essay, The Power of the Powerlessness, The Power of the Powerless, to the lively craft uh, panel discussion we had with President Clinton and President Havel, and the Arts Initiative dramatic reading of Havel's first full-length play, The Garden Party, in this theater. He has also taken time to report to the new Secretary General of the United Nations about North Korea and human rights issues there. The Center for the Study of Human Rights, Documentation, and Research represents one of our university efforts to make it possible for people to live within the truth. Havel has said it is our duty to think about human rights for people who live everywhere. When a single global civilization embraces our planet, and when the fate of every human being and every society is more than ever the fate of us all. If we care for others, we are at the same time caring for ourselves and our children. The only way to care is to know, and the only way to know is to have access to knowledge. That is the concept underlying our Center for Human Rights Documentation and Research. We hope it will contribute to awareness 
and then to caring, and then to action. It is appropriate that President Havel makes his last appearance at Columbia with his friend Wale Shoenka, two kindred spirits who have lived within the truth. Both artists, playwrights, both found themselves in conflict with power, and because of their artistic impulse to speak the truth, they could not accept living lies of their government, and as a result, both ended up in jail for their beliefs. As Shoyanka told one interviewer in 1967, I was placed in solitary confinement for a year and 10 months out of the period in which I stayed in prison, which was just over two years. Very conscious of the fact that an effort was being made to destroy my mind because I was deprived of books, deprived of any means of writing, deprived of human companionship. The new archive that we celebrate today is the opposite of everything Shoyanka faced in solitary confinement. It welcomes those who seek knowledge, and in the thousands of feet of archive materials, it encourages visitors to feel connected to the world. It is now my pleasure to give you President Havel. I just want to say that the spirit in which he has undertaken this residency has been just further evidence of the special place he holds in our minds appropriately. This is an individual whom, whatever your age, you know has acted and thought and expressed himself in ways uh, that it is what we dream for in public life and in artistic life. There is no separation between uh, President Havel as an artist and President Havel as a political leader. At all times, he is speaking truth. It is not speaking truth to power. It is power speaking truth as well. I now give you President Havel. gentlemen, dear friends, <clears throat> I would like to use this opportunity to thank Columbia University for its invitation, for its hospitality. Special thanks to President Bollinger, to Gregory Mosher, and to others. It was for me very interesting, very important to meet a lot of clever people here, to speak with them, to speak with young people, with students. I was always sorry that my English isn't better than it is. <coughs> Uh, we know from our experience how important is 
the international solidarity with people who are engaged for human rights, human freedoms, human dignity all around the world. Because many years, a lot of us in my country were in opposition, were persecuted. We were so-called dissidents. And uh, I remember how important was for us when institutions like Helsinki Watch in that time and others support us, visited us and help us in different ways. And uh, I think that this kind of support is possible only if it is based on good knowledge, good informations. And I admire this important center which was based, which was established here in Columbia University. I admire this idea and this project and this reality because the archives and documentation which will be there could serve many, many people who want to engage for somebody else who lives in worse, worse condition. On the end, I would like to express um, uh, um, uh, my, my admiration to my colleague Volasoinka. I am glad I have opportunity to meet him. Uh, he is my colleague as a playwright, as a people who worked in theater, but also as a prisoner. Welcome. Thank you for your attention. to be here again, for this time in company of uh, President uh, Havel, who continues to demonstrate, <clears throat> as I've tried to teach some of our eternal rulers, not very good pupils, that there is always life after power. Uh, I thought I'll title my presentation Human Rights and the Conditioning of History. The International Day for the Commemoration of the Slave Trade and its Abolition, celebrated by UNESCO annually, uh, took on a special character in the year 2004. It also coincided 
It coincided with the 200th anniversary of the independence of the Republic of Haiti, the first black republic of the modern world, founded and governed by descendants of slaves, the symbol of revolt. Uh, this is uh, against uh, enslavement throughout the new world, and a beacon for the spirit of freedom anyway. Some of us here will recall the attempt by Napoleon to reimpose slavery on that colony in uh, 1804, and his defeat at the hands of a slave army under the leadership of Dessalines. History conditions human thought in many ways. I was familiar with the expression, the Napoleon of industry, or the Napoleon of commerce, but I'd always imagined that it was a mere figure of speech, never suspecting that it was a crown that remained attractive to business people uh, who, however, wanted to try their hands at military adventurism. Uh, it would appear that I was mistaken. <clears throat> We're not about to go into the history of the Napoleonic venture, however. Only let its perpetrated resurrection serve as a pretext for an updated look at the phenomenon of slavery on an occasion that is dedicated to the issue of human rights. It is salutary to take a look at contemporary ramifications of this passage of human history about which, needless to say, the last word has yet to be written. The phenomenon of slavery, however, with its multiple garbs, provokes considerations of how much it may have contributed, even till today, to the mental conditioning that is discernible in conduct that does not strike some of us, that does strike some of us again and again as incompatible with the 21st century. 58 years after the Declaration of Universal Human Rights and two centuries after the original Declaration of the Rights of Man that launched the first political revolution in a contemporary world. If we adopt the notation of the Age of Reason, uh, the latter half of the 18th century, also known as the Age of Enlightenment as our landmark. Do the following snippets read as if they have been accepted from a revised Brave New World or a capitalist 1984? Here goes, straight from the internet. At a Wharton Business School conference on business in Africa, World Trade Organization representative Hannaford Schmidt announced the creation of a new initiative for full private stewardry of labor for the parts of Africa that have been hardest hit by the 500 years of Africa's free trade with the West. Now, what exactly did Mr. Schmidt mean by full private stewardry of labor? Here are the relevant quotes. The stewardship will require Western companies doing business in some parts of Africa to own their workers outright. The program will require such business to privatize human, them, humans themselves. 
Again, full untrammeled private stewardry is the best available solution to Africa's poverty and the inevitable result of the free market theory. Schmidt admitted that in many ways, private stewardry was similar to slavery. But just as compassionate conservatism has polished the rough edges of labor relations in industrialized countries, full stewardship or compassionate slavery could be a similar boon to developing countries. I believe this is more than a fair sampling of the detailed scheme in the presentation by the representative of the World Trade Organization uh, to the Wharton Business School Conference in Philadelphia. But just once more, uh, Hannaford's concluding remarks. That's what free trade is all about, the freedom to buy and sell anything, including people. Let us now move away from Haiti and the diaspora to the original homeland of those slaves, and perhaps of other slaves-to-be, remaining more or less in contemporary time. Oh, have I remembered to reveal that all the foregoing was an elaborate hoax, a satire in the manner of Swift's A Modest Proposal, perpetrated by two high-spirited individuals as a critique of GATT and the international production and trading conditions that give the West its exploitative economic domination over the developing world. Well, they were really uh, taking on sweatshops and slave labor, immigrant labor especially, but such was the degree of truth beneath the hyperboles that they did succeed in being taken seriously received invitations to other genuine trade conferences and engaged in various exchanges over a website set up specifically for the promotion of this hilarious critique of globalization. It would be wise also for us to take the episode quite seriously, indeed to read it as a hyped up version of the reality of today's production relations called globalization. Parody, we must never permit ourselves to forget, is a window on truth, however preposterous its propositions. So now, back to a continent where slavery, alas, is no laughing matter for some parts. I shall co-opt uh, a genuine sociological expose on my route to a specific ongoing scenario that yet again instructs, or perhaps I should say, accuses much of humanity of its tragic limitations in the effort to escape the conditioning of history, most of all when it comes to a determination of the rights and dignity of others. The picture is not altogether bleak, admittedly. Some of us do ultimately escape this conditioning, fly off its seemingly magnetized trajectory into a rational orbit of recognition and respect for the humanity of others. This process may occur as a result of some form of enlightenment that comes through discourse, through exposure to possible alternatives in human relationships. It could emerge as the consequences of natural or external disasters, a drastic reversal that undermines self-regarding and assumptions of invulnerability revealing to themselves their own fragility or imperfection, so that for the first time, 
Such people come to see themselves as they have viewed others. In many cases, alas, such a moment of enlightenment, or at least some form of accommodation with alternative views, arrives through direct confrontation, as in the case of Haiti, a violent reaction from within, or occasionally a forceful intervention by others. I shall not attempt to predict what form of resolution will result from the most dangerous instance of this particular pathology, the skewed relationship of specific entities on the African continent that the world chooses to ignore or dismiss. But I'm far ahead of my ultimate destination, so let me backtrack a little. Take you back some 15 years or more when, quite possibly, you may also have viewed a documentary by that restless field investigator for the CNN, Christiana Abampour, a documentary that featured the practice of female enslavement in an obscure village in the Republic of Ghana. I confess that I feel rather attached to that instructive real life history. First, it reveals how much one does, how much takes place right under one's nose without one being aware of it. The expose involved a community that remained a mixture of several cultures, irrespective of race or, or religion, and it enables us, even while focusing on a specific actuality that pertains to a specific locality, enables us reflect on certain abnormalities in human relationships that have dogged the evolution of the human race, either in the internal group interaction or in the exocentric relationships of such societies with others. My theme, of course, is the unfinished business of human enslavement. Enslavement, no matter in what form it is manifested, enslavement as a societal conditioning that, even while formally denied, may actually remain active as powerful undercurrents within the human psyche, dictating the politics and the policies of state, or perhaps simply of power. So on the details provided by Christiana Amampour in her encounter with a little known tradition whose human centerpiece is a reluctant human resource known as brides of the gods. The explanation of the status of these brides is easily summed up as the simple fact of their being victims of some quite unremarkable, indeed rather trite history. Trite yet with a powerful hold on the inhabitants of the village from which the brides are extracted and parceled off to another neighboring village as annual dues. While the origin of this tradition is now mostly fragmentary, it continues to exercise such power that since the originating incident at some time no one could clearly remember, the maidens of that village were routinely surrendered on demand to a permanent life of servitude to the priesthood class of the other. There were suggestions that it had to do with redeeming an ancient uh, debt of sorts between the two villages. What concerns us in the immediate is that, unlike even the uh, progenies of, shall we say, the transatlantic slave trade, whose victims could at least hope for manumission at the ongoing commercial rate or the goodwill of their owners, 
The maidens of this village remain perpetually bound as object possessions of the creditor village. It meant that from generation to generation, every female that was born to the debtor village was designated a bride of the gods, even from childhood. The lessons of Amampu's documentary serve as a recurrent reference point on many levels, throwing up endless ramifications, both symbolic and actual. Amampu elicited from these women slaves and from the villagers horrifying stories of rape by the priest on the unwilling brides, some of them decidedly underage. She did not lack for adamant uh, corroboration by the priests themselves. The master owed his slaves nothing in return for their enforced services, not even domestic upkeep. On the contrary, they obliged to fetch and carry for him, tend his farms, and minister to every whim of his existence. As they grow old and become sexually unattractive, they are simply discarded while the invisible deity, through his randy representative on earth, sends for a fresh substitute. It goes without saying that, as in all history of slavery, some would attempt to escape, which only led to their being shackled on being caught and brought back in disgrace. Such was the superstitious terror in which the villagers were trapped, the family of the unwilling bride would themselves return her to the priest, otherwise they were obliged to send a substitute. It was simply a case of the lesser of two evils. Ms. Amampo was careful to ensure that the priests fully utilized their right of reply. I was particularly fascinated, you know, in that repellent way with which we are familiar, by a singularly unappetizing specimen with appalling teeth and roomy eyes. A noxious satyr who was incidentally a government official in the very near modern capital, Accra, only two hours drive away. Asked what he thought of the practice of slavery in modern times, he defended it as an age-old culture, truculently demanded to know what business it was of Amampu coming all that way from across the seas to interfere with a culture about which she knew nothing. In short, a repudiation of one of those potential agencies of transformation that I enumerated earlier, external intervention. And by external, I mean external to that micro-community, not external to the nation or the continent. Amampu could very easily have been a Ghanaian journalist from another town. But what of the internal? Well, it did turn out that the Ghanaian government itself was unaware of this culture of God-mandated slavery in the hinterland of its nation. Also, a spokesman claimed, quite convincingly, I thought, no matter, from within that same nation's space. And this process had begun even before Miss Amampo's visit. Indeed, I believe it, that her visit was instigated by news of the reformative activism a voluntary program had been launched to end the practice. It was a program that utilized, and this refers to what I claimed earlier, and uh, may be of interest to uh, psychosociological uh, aspects. Uh, the program utilized rituals from within the same culture, rituals of cleansing to neutralize the presumed supernatural 
powers that the priests claim to exercise, powers that could inflict divine disasters on the liberated victims and their villages if they attempted to hold the practice. So these were rituals from within the same cultural armory to dislodge the tenacious hold of fear that had been inculcated in the debtor village, keeping the people in bondage even without physical chains. Once out of the physical clutches of their sexual masters, a process of rehabilitation then followed as they were gently eased into a world from which, in a mood of despair and resignation, many had withdrawn. So tradition, we see, has many faces. From within the same cultural matrix, we can extract arguments and strategies for the degradation or ennoblement of the species, for the suppression of its productive potential or its enhancement, for its liberation or its enslavement. We're also reminded that the claims of cultural usage can be quite specious, that they may be geared to a selective interests in opposition to the well-being of other sectors, and not necessarily a minority of the same community, exploiting, distorting, and abusing in the process what are no more than incidents of a history in the making. Very often, what we refer to as tradition is in reality history, habit, or convenience, a congealment of unreflective practices that happen to suit the dominant or ruling sectors of a society. Let us isolate just for a moment the ultra-familiar response of the fetish priest to intervention by a casual reporter. Who are you to interfere? This is an internal affair of uh, whose real nature you are ignorant. Go away, mind your own business. Two things are involved here. One, the defense of cultural relativity, a ploy that we encounter again and again whenever the cause of the rights of humanity are at issue. One is an instance, uh, the recent uh, uh, opera over the, uh, the attempt to stone a woman to death in northern Nigeria for the supposed crime of adultery. You from another culture are simply ignorant of the workings of this culture. In reality, however, there is an underlying theme, a history a history that is made and often tailored to justify and authorize the present. A relationship between one village and another and the inhabitants. Yes, history cannot be undone. It has happened. The question is how we permit it to inform present attitudes, present and future relationships. Now, our specific reference to the brides of the gods is meant, of course, to remind us of parallels everywhere. Just two quick examples. Uh, the Osu, for instance, the case of the untouchables in Iboland in eastern Nigeria. The Osu, again, victims of some distant history, is not permitted to move outside his or her class. The Osu is permanently assigned the meanest, most despised jobs in the community. To marry an Osu, man or woman, is to lower your own status and condemn your children to the status of Osu. You may wish to refer to Chinua Achebe's No Longer at Ease for an encounter with the workings of the Osu tradition in the narrative of a relationship, a love relationship between two young people. Even more widely known, of course, is the Indian Untouchables. Um, more aspects, another aspect of the slave status, rightly undergoing drastic erosion that guarantees, in my estimation, their eradication 
the eradication of any lingering vestiges even before the end of this decade. Is it possible, however, to express the same optimism with certain other forms of social ostracism and bondage? We're concerned fundamentally with the principles of volition, which is what defines a mature member of any given society, be it volition in the sphere of human relations, in religious adherence, or in the politics of society. The commonest exercise of volition, of course, is the right to choose. And this is what essentially confers dignity on the human species, the right even to err on the side of choice, the right even to damn oneself for eternity, at least in the eyes of believers who live outside one's own set of beliefs. Our leading example has been chosen, obviously, for its horrifying immediacy. But the ramifications of this field of cultural invocation go to the very roots of society and provoke questions of the very process of assignment, indeed the imposition of roles and status by one part of society on another, as contrasted with the right of appropriation of different roles by the same dominant part. Volition is the acid test against the multiple faces of human abuses and the denial of rights, be it the denial of the right of expression, of association, of movement, the abuse of the body under torture, imprisonment without uh, due judicial process, the forced genital mutilation of the female, and so on, right through the dismal list that serves as the arrogant ensign of power and domination in myriad societies. Slavery, or enslavement, may I remind you, is our going theme, the phenomenon of human bondage, even in hidden forms. We find that most human conflicts rotate on that much underrated, largely unexplored axis, whose polar ends are accurately designated power and freedom. The will to dominate, to control, to impose manners, faith, and conduct on the one hand, and on the other, the resistant will to combat domination, to insist that the relationships within any human collectivity between collectivities and individuals, between rulers and the ruled, must be negotiated, must be based on structures of discovery and persuasion, on mutual respect and tolerance. Now we have seen that when uh, a mere cultural proposition that is internal to a specific domain is confronted by an external challenge, one that offers viable alternatives, proves capable of demonstrating the falsity or exposing the flaws of the former, despite its elaborately developed, indeed self-proliferating superstructures, what we encounter, as earlier narrated, is not a willingness to re-examine one's givens, but a retreat behind a wall of tradition, of culture, a contestation of the right of the one to comment on the other. This is our tradition your yardstick, and this means any critiquing yardstick cannot apply. This is Texas, and our tradition is to hang people by the neck until they be dead, even if they are proved mentally deficient, incapable of understanding what they are alleged to have done. What such contenders are really saying, of course, is that in Texas, we have a history of hanging even imbeciles. Now, nor must we forget 
that uh, as lately as 50 years ago, it was a tradition in parts of this nation not only to tar and feather, castrate, and then publicly hang the black man, while families held picnics at the venue of the event, complete with barbecue and music. Picture postcards were printed of the event, which were then sent to friends and relations who could not participate in the revelry, with a commiserating greeting, wish you were here. There is actually a traveling exhibition uh, of such postcards and posters in the United States at this moment. It seems such a distant tradition today, however, totally incomprehensible, even to many of the descendants of these lynch parties. But there was tradition for you. Undoubtedly, some Southern folks still look back with nostalgia to those days, wondering what is this aberration called liberation that came to deprive them of their Sunday, their favorite Sunday traditional outing. Now, no one will question that there was the obvious distinction between the lynch gangs and their victims, race. But there was an even more crucial, though understated one, that sustained the mental state of impunity in relation of one to the other, property. After all, as some of us remember only too well, in the 1960s and early 70s, when racial discrimination despite legislation, even in cities like New York, was like a wet towel that hit one in the face, proprietors of hotels, restaurants, and the public uh, and other public institutions actually sought to distinguish between African visitors from the continent and their black nationals in the United States. Once in the late 60s, I had the great privilege it was bestowed on me like an honor of receiving an apology from a white racist who became quite contrite about his earlier boorishness. I'd been seated at least 20 minutes uh, and he had walked past at least a dozen times to serve others, staring straight ahead as he passed. So finally, putting on my best British accent, I stopped him and asked, am I getting any service or not? He stopped, looked at me, excuse me? I said, Am I getting any service? I've been seated here at least 30 minutes and you keep walking past to serve others. Am I getting served? Of course, the next question was, where are you from? <laughs> Nigeria informed him, West Africa. A grudging, twisted grin of embarrassment came over his face as he said, I'm sorry, but you should have told me that you were from Africa. Well, <laughs> Operating in the head of that man, in addition, of course, to the instinctive rejection of a black figure, was a history, a relationship that was formed by that history and remained immutable, owner and property. Unarticulated, it filled out the social matrix of his relationship with the other, an other who additionally was distinguished by his pigmentation, hair, nose, and lips. To cure, to cure that individual of his psychic disjunction requires more than the compulsion of the law. True, he could no longer reach for his whip and thrash the uppity nigger or grab his shotgun and blow him back to Africa. The law most cruelly uh, no longer permitted such a response. However, for the full transformation of his inner psyche, he would have to undergo the rights of confrontation an end to the denial of a specific iniquity of history and repudiation of the meretricious social privileges 
that such a history conferred upon him. Again, I here insert the question, are there perhaps nations, communities, still trapped today in this very condition of historic denial and thus in need of that right of exorcism from the demons of history? Bondage is not always applicable only to the condition of the victim, as in the case of our brides of the gods, but may apply to the psyche of the violator, as in this case and in others we shall shortly encounter. It would seem that Bill Clinton, during his presidency, I'm sorry I wasn't here the other day, I would have liked to put this question to him, why he did it. Um, during his presidency, he discerned a need for some process of exorcism within the society over which he presided. Thus, his attempts to redress history. In addition to rehabilitating the hanged witches of Salem, the subject of Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible, he apologized to the Tuskegee syphilis experiment that used black people as guinea pigs without their knowledge of the actual cause of the experimentation. That is, they were infected with syphilis virus, but treatment was withheld from some of them. One of the most diabolical scientific experiments that are encountered on this side of the equator. Such disposable human material was, of course, none other than the progeny of slaves, those who were then considered unfit for the front door and must sit in undesignated benches in the park. In short, whose rung on the human ladder of evaluation was, for the European and white American world, something close to sub-zero. Bill Clinton followed this up while on African soil by coming quite close to an apology for the slave trade. Was he playing politics? It hardly matters. The motivating factor for these revisions of history, one positive face of historic revisionism, goes beyond attempting to close the account books of the past. In fact, they are anything but closing the accounts. They reopen the obscured ledger sheets of reckoning, thus serving as a potential critique, perhaps a restraining factor for present and future human designs. Clinton's history, um, I beg your pardon, Clinton's gesture of redressing history has been matched in Asia. The Japanese were being dragged to the confessional altar made to express some kind of remorse for their crime against the Korean people. The sexual enslavement, again that word, that subhumanizing condition, the enslavement of Korean women known as troop comfort women, or to go by the Ghanaian distinction, brides of the Shinto gods. And finally, to bring us right up to the present, that is no more than a few weeks ago, at the approach of the centennial anniversary of the abolition of the slave trade um, on British territory, the Prime Minister of England, Tony Blair, came as close as Bill Clinton to an apology to the African peoples for the role of the British in the trade in human flesh. Interestingly enough, there are critics among his own people who insist that he did not go far enough, that he did not express a clear-cut apology, but then others claim that there was absolutely nothing over which to apologize. Well, apology or not, anniversaries are convenient occasions for confronting history. Permit me to cite again what I stated at the beginning in order to make this derivative quite explicit. 
that a confrontation with history may enable us to escape this conditioning, that is, a conditioning that comes from a history of skewed human relationships, enable humanity to fly off its seemingly magnetized trajectory into a new orbit of mutual human recognition and respect. We move close to destination. Barely three weeks ago, a faintly quaint ritual took place in a building directly opposite the headquarters of the United Nations, right here in New York. That ritual was played out against the background of the United Nations flags and took the form of a judicial trial. Believe it or not, I was made the presiding judge on that occasion. And the event was to try the leader of a nation accused of crimes against humanity. Yes, to some extent, it was play acting, but it was a deadly serious one conducted in all solemnity. Witnesses had been flown into New York for that hearing. Aid workers, outside observers, journalists, one had barely escaped becoming a casualty himself, but above all, direct victims and survivors, some of whom were still undergoing counseling for their trauma. Some could not hold back tears as they testified, as memories of the fate of others and their own escape flooded their being and they relieved days and weeks of anguish and uncertainty all over again. Yes, unanimously, the panel found the defendant, General Omar Bashir, guilty as charged. It was a symbolic act designed to trigger awake the designated structural engineers of an ideal world order, who remain trapped, however, in the gilded web of rhetoric and protocols, bargaining and double talk while the greatest crime against humanity on the African continent since the killings of Rwanda was taking place right under their watch. Those who wish to understand the undercurrents of the mind that breed and nurture the inhuman conduct of the Sudanese government against sections of its own populace, notably the peoples of Western Sudan, the Darfur, would do well to take good note of the role of history in this scenario. It is totally superfluous that the favorite battle cry, as abundantly testified by survivors of the Janjaweed marauders in their mission of ethnic cleansing, has been none other than that familiar cry of disdain, kill the slaves. That exhortation has been abundantly recorded in numerous testimonies, including at the tribunal, kill the slaves, or variants thereof. That yet unexpiated history of the Trans-Sahara slave trade, that is, the centuries-old history of the relationship between different races on the African continent has coalesced into a master-slave tradition, one that establishes one part of the population as its subhuman sector, subject to permanent humiliation through neglect, double standards of governance, selective application of the law, leaving such a sector prone to threat of annihilation if and whenever it insists on a revision of its social status. Like the sex objects of the Ghanaian brides of the gods, the Korean comfort women, or the black victims of the lynch sport and the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, the people of Darfur remain object possessions in the minds of the ruling class of the Sudan, who pride themselves, Arabs, and divinely appointed rulers. 
indistinguishable in complexion most of the time, bound together by the same religion, the violators nevertheless cognize themselves as beings of a higher pedigree, a distinction that takes its authority from none other than the consistently obscured, evaded, or simply deodorized history of pre-European, that is, Arab slavery on the African continent. Not that slavery, in its formal sense, is even extinct on the continent. Expanding our field beyond the local aberration of an obscure Ghanaian village and its brides of the gods, we know that more than mere vestiges of slavery exist, for instance, in today's Mauritania, Zanzibar, etc. That relationship was responsible for the massacre of some hundred soldiers 20 years ago. These incidents are ill-reported in the Western press, we know. The relationship is responsible for the massacre of about three times that number, the same number uh, of civilians in the same country three years later, and led to the expulsion of Senegalese indigenes en masse from the country. It is that history of the held over slave relationship that manifests itself so brutally in today's Sudan. It forms more than a mere backdrop to the civil war that raged in that nation for more than three decades, devastated much of the civic society and cultures of southern Sudan. That front, the South, being now pacified through mutual attrition and the unbroken resistant will of the South, the humiliated Sudanese government has transferred its frustration to Western Sudan to the region that is known as Darfur and is the habitation of native indigenous Africans. These ongoing master-slave encounters, however cynically disguised in official communiques from within and without, remember how the United Nations shied away from employing the word genocide in its description of the Rwanda massacres. So disguise it how we choose the unexorcised relation and their contestation by the second half of that deadly coupling, master and slave, reveal the psychopathology of the actors in the Darfur tragedy. That yet subsisting pathology of the slave owner is memorably captured in an anecdote related by the Nigerian author, Kolio Motosho, in his reprise of Nigerian history. The title is Just Before Dawn. Amatosho was writing about that phase in West African history when the movement for the eradication of the slave trade finally got underway from whatever motives, commercial, commercially convenient or altruistic, doesn't matter. And a British colonial officer proceeded to lecture an emir, a traditional ruler in northern Nigeria, on the British resolve to end the slave trade. It riled that potentate beyond endurance, causing him to explode can you tell a cat to stop mousing? I shall die with a slave in my mouth. Like that emir, or like the priest of the Ghanaian village to Amampur, like the slave master of the southern and west Indian plantations who insisted on their right to do whatever they wanted with their property, brand, amputate, castrate, rape, or hang, like Napoleon who repudiated the supposed age of enlightenment in order to re-enslave the nation of Haiti, the Sudanese government says to the United Nations, mind your own business. This is a sovereign state 
one that must be left alone to exercise the prerogative of ownership over its human possessions. That is the reality that places two and a half million of humanity in makeshift tents, praying not only to the dry dust and wind of the desert, pray to drought and disease, but also of the marauding horse and camel riders called the Janjaweed, who continue to pillage even the scanty possessions of those dispossessed people, confident not only of the protection, but of the propulsive complicity of the government. Unlike the internet hoax, the Emir's tale is not, I assure you, apocryphal, but mercifully, it speaks of an extinct species in that country. Is it possible to say the same of today's Sudan? The others are the Sudanese government has given the stormtroopers for its final solution, I use that expression deliberately, the incontinent Janjaweed, as it arms them with the very latest of weaponry, is precisely the sentiments of that emir, ride out and return with a slave in your mouth. The Janjaweed have followed that exhortation to the letter and some. This is what the world yet fails to understand. This is why the conscience of the world has gone into a prolonged winter sleep. The concept I know is mind-boggling, that while the rest of the world, the Japanese, the Europeans, the Americans, are attempting to redress history, celebrating the termination of that history, expressing remorse for such a past, in another part of the world, however, the very opposite conditioning is in the ascendant. A ruling, exultantly racist cabal elevates that same dismal history to a principle of existence and mobilizes its bandits to perpetuate the iniquities of that history. In their tens of thousands, today's slave catchers continue to overrun ancient settlements, burning crops, slaughtering cattle, poisoning wells, raping women in their thousands and eradicating villages, unrepentant raiders of the night who repudiate all notions of human enlightenment, bounding the earth, hundreds of slaves in their mouths. Never again was the oath that followed Auschwitz and Belsen. Never again was again the banner after Rwanda when it is all over in Darfur, we shall undoubtedly see those ringing words inscribed on the gates of the United Nations, never again. Thank you very much. Mr. Shoeko is prepared to take questions. Yes. I, I recently uh, 
that optimism, I fluctuate all the time. Because uh, I like to give the devil his due. Uh, if I see the African Union moving in a particular direction, I believe that it's essential to express some kind of encouragement. Um, uh, so try and jolly them along, hoping that the right path will eventually be taken. But of course, it's obvious that the African Union has failed the Sudanese people woefully on this occasion. I don't want to comment any further because I know that right now Kofi Annan is again uh, involved in discussions with African leaders, uh, hoping to do something urgently before the deadline which the African troops, the peacekeeping force, uh, uh, have with have been given by this murderous regime, which is the end of this year. So I'd like to wait and see what comes out of that. But both the African Union and the United Nations have really once again let humanity down. Yes. Yes. You refer to apologies by national leaders. You refer to Hello. You refer to apologies by Clinton and Blair and so on. Um, coming from South Africa originally and uh, thinking about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, it's the um, beacon, as far as I'm concerned, about how past wrongs can be looked at, examined, and learned from. And I'm just wondering if uh, we need to introduce more TRCs around the world and whether you see a mechanism for this to be applied. Well, um, you know, the TRC was a unique event, I think, experiment. The combination of circumstances that made the TRC work, which of course includes uh, uh, the, the presence of characters uh, like Mandela, Desmond Tutu, um, very passionate believers in the possibility of overcoming the past, you know, a, a conviction uh, which uh, I'm afraid uh, people like me are not saintly enough to, sh to share. Uh, I believe very much in the principle of, uh, of restitution. And I don't see how one, the kind of experiment which you had in South Africa can work for the Sudan. But in any case, uh, this is sort of jumping the gun. There has to be a state, equilibrium, uh, ceasefire, uh, a concession of uh, the enormity of crime, of criminality of the past, etc., before one can even begin to think of that. But uh, if there are people in the Sudan uh, who can uh, sort of inspire the kind of conviction which those two people have mentioned, uh, inspired among uh, even skeptical South Africans, then of course we could begin thinking of that. But right now, I would just like to see Musa Hilal hanged up by the toes upside down and toasted, you know, to death. He was the leader of the ginger, ginger weed. Jane. Um, 
I wanted to follow on that question. Um, another example of attempted justice is the gachacha process um, under, uh, that is ongoing in Rwanda now, the justice on the grass trials that they're holding. Um, I was there last year and attended some of those gachachas, and I'd like to know your opinion of that process and how you would see that both working in Rwanda or not working and applicable to other situations. Well, the difference with the Rwandan situation, of course, is that uh, while something of that sort is being uh, tried, especially at the local levels, local levels, uh, a court is also sitting, a court for crimes against humanity. And the, linda, the leaders of that massacre of the Interham way and the instigators, whether even in terms of radio propaganda, you know, the misuse of the radio, some of them are priests, some are university professors, you know, who actually sat down and plotted this massacre. And they are being made an example of. I think that the two, uh, the two things running parallel uh, are essential very often to the process of healing and overcoming the past. Because we, the victims must see at least that something is being done uh, which demonstrates a respect and understanding of what they have under, undergone. So that duality, that dual approach, is really my own temperamental process, uh, because I, I, I think that the psychology of the violator uh, is one which should not be underestimated. Yes. In the back. What tactics are you going to try to use next to stop the slavery in Africa? What tactics would you recommend next to stop the slavery in Africa? Oh, yes. Well, the first thing is that um, the, um, the perpetrators, who are known, by the way, in fact, there are indictments which have been issued uh, against some of the perpetrators by the uh, International Court of Justice, um, a greater effort should be made to publicize the existence of those, uh, those secret uh, documents as a as a warning to others. Uh, they should know that there is no sanctuary, there may be no sanctuary permanently in perpetuity, even in the Sudan. The AIDS, all sorts of voluntary organizations have done some marvelous work, I must tell you, in the Sudan. Uh, even while this southern war was on, and, and uh, a resumption of slavery uh, had taken place between the Dinka and the Nuer, including the rustling of cattle. Some voluntary organizations actually established the equivalent of, uh, local equivalent of truth and reconciliation, in which these warring groups met. Slaves were returned, some were redeemed, actually bought by voluntary agencies, bought back, and others were just returned, you know, together with cattle. That's why I keep stressing uh, this issue property, because they were regarded as a uh, property. And by that process, uh, a new understanding of the worth of each other uh, came about. But simultaneously, of course, a war, let us remember, was going on. It was possible because it was backed by the resistant will of southern Sudan. And a lot, quite a, a large uh, uh, percentage of the slavery has gone down, of course, since the independence, or rather, since the um, uh, the end of the war in Sudan and its absorption into the, uh, into the Sudanese uh, government. In other words, since the end of hostilities. Because the ho hostilities also 
uh, increased the phenomenon of slavery. People now, instead of just buying slaves, captured them. It was war. So it was a reversion to that mentality, that historic mentality, which gave one side uh, domination over, uh, over another. And the war was then used as an excuse to perpetuate that particular relationship. So once again, the war has to stop a massive international, and in my preference, I mean, there are African soldiers serving everywhere in the world. They served in Nigerian soldiers served in, uh, among the UN troops in Lebanon. They're still there. Ghanaians served there. Uh, they served in the Balkans, in the former Yugoslavia, etc., etc. And there's no reason at all why the United Nations cannot use these peacekeeping forces also to tackle the very issue of slavery. Yes. My name is Chukumwaya Ibuku, and I'm happy I'm from Nigeria. I'm for the, for the first time since being in Colombia for the Human Rights Advocates Fellowship. I am proud to be a Nigerian because I remember in a similar circumstance, um, George Soros said that in Nigeria nothing works. So I'm proud that, that in Nigeria? nothing works. So I'm proud that, <laughs> that I have um, somebody like Wole Shoyinka that is here today. And we look up to him as, as our mentor in Nigeria. And my question is, why do you think the United Nations is not working? Why do you think it has failed, despite the calls by a lot of people that multilateralism is what we need in the world today, and yet the only recognized multilateral institution in the world, which is United Nations, is not working, especially when it's obvious that you know, it has important roles to play in, in the world today? Well, it's a, it's a complex uh, question there. There are many factors. One, of course, is the interest, the vested interest of some of its members. Uh, Korea, uh, China, and in fact, uh, the Soviet Union, I believe, also opposed the attempts to move very decisively and forcibly in, uh, in uh, the Sudan. In fact, I think there's a delegation uh, set up here about to go to China uh, to remonstrate in fact, with the uh, Chinese government both about problems of its own uh, human rights, but additionally, because I was invited to be part of that, additionally to remonstrate with the Chinese government about its support for this, uh, this uh, government which should be on trial for crimes against humanity in a proper court, not Wallace and Carl's court now. Um, uh, that and also there's too much horse trading going on in the, uh, in the United Nations. Uh, one would expect horse trading in regular politics, but the United Nations is supposed to be uh, a citadel of certain ideals, working towards a certain ideal uh, future for the, in the relationship between uh, governments. But that horse trading, I'm afraid, still goes on. Uh, the workings are most labyrinthine, uh, if you ever have uh, attended some of their uh, the discussions or dinners. It's amazing what they bargain away, and ultimately what they bargain away is our humanity. So, and it's very ponderous. The, the works of the United Nations are very ponderous. I think we need uh, more powers, immediate emergency powers, to be given to the Secretary General of that organization. In the back. No, I'm sorry, the, the woman in the back. 
how do you think how how do you think we as a society are progressing toward the perfection of human rights and do you think that such an achievement is impossible a progressive force you say? i couldn't hear Put it again, would you please repeat it how do you think that we as a society are progressing toward the perfection of human rights, and do you think that such an achievement is impossible? I can the first part. The yeah. first part. Do I think well, that How do you think we as a society are progressing toward the perfection of human rights, and do you think that such an achievement is impossible? And do you mean by society the United States or the global society? The or global society. Global society. Global yeah. society. Oh, uh, I'm convinced that uh, ultimately, some future generation, you sound young, I can't see you, probably yours, will look back on the present and really wonder how we could have allowed things to endure for so long. So I think uh, that coalition, that acceptance of uh, the ideal state of the rights of humanity, I believe it is possible. Uh, if I thought it was totally impossible, um, I don't know what I'd be doing, but I think, I think we all are building towards that ultimate uh, condition. Uh, some of us won't be around to witness it, but I think we, we can take comfort in the fact that by believing it is possible, we are placing certain stepping stones uh, to that pinnacle of the ideal. Let me um, <clears throat> take this occasion to draw this to a close, because I think I know people will have to rush out. They already are leaving. We want to thank you, Willie, for this extraordinarily compelling, powerful uh, speech to us today. We want to thank President Havel uh, for his residency here. We will always remember this, and we welcome you back uh, at any time you would like to be here. And we want to, again, celebrate our Center on Documentation of Human Rights. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you.